Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you. Welcome. Um, you know, this at the end of this last school year, we delivered, uh, as a staff, we put together and delivered um, some floral arrangements to the schools in our area just as a, um, as a thank you for the year, something they could put in their uh, break room or their, their staff lunchroom. Uh, and it was so well received. Andre and I hand-delivered those and were able to meet uh, some of the staff there. And it was just so well received. We also delivered a, uh, a care package uh, to the fire station to just kind of commemorate their uh, grand reopening. And again, that was so well received. And so these little steps that we can to just reach out and say, hey, we recognize you. We see you. We enjoy being neighbors with you. And, uh, and so I do encourage you to grab some of those uh, teacher appreciation cards. I, th- I think that it will be uh, just a tremendous uh, joy and blessing to all who receive them. Uh, and then, of course, I know uh, some of you are teachers by profession, and uh, and and certainly uh, we can never thank you or express enough appreciation. Right? I mean, our teachers are really just uh, such a key part to the fabric of our society. So just wonderfully, wonderfully grateful uh, for this opportunity to do that. Uh, Take your Bible, please, and meet me in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. Matthew, chapter 22. I must admit to just a a little bit, a wee bit of uh, concern this morning, uh, because it's often said that we should never talk politics or religion in mixed company. You've heard this. I'm not sure where that advice originated, but I certainly get it. I understand it. These two topics, politics uh, and religion, can be emotionally charged and, and easily combustible. I myself have been in situations where one or the other of these subjects were brought up and the tension in the room immediately ratcheted to another level. Um, even among loved ones, it's widely believed, even among loved ones, it's widely believed to not discuss these issues. For instance, uh, just quickly here, by a show of hands, how many of you have been in the company of others when a discussion on politics went awry? And how many of you, again, have been in the company of others when a discussion on religion turned sour? So you can understand my concern this morning, because uh, although it said we should never talk politics or religion in mixed company, today we're doing both. We're now seven weeks into our summer series, and many of you expressed interest in what the Bible says about politics. Politics is just another way of talking about government and the process whereby we decide how we're going to live as a society. Though we may not always be in the know politically, Politics are everywhere, 
and affect every aspect of our lives in some way. Government exists and serves a purpose. The Bible acknowledges this and even affirms it. So those of us who strive to live in accordance with Scripture are sometimes caught between uh, our responsibility to government and our responsibility to God. And yet today's text reveals that as citizens of two kingdoms, the earthly and the heavenly, we must serve the one and prioritize the other. So I want to read this uh, passage with you, Matthew chapter 22. And I'll be reading from verse 15 through verse 22. Matthew 22, 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went, went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, those who followed Herod. And they said, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you aren't swayed by appearances. Tell us then... What you think, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and whose inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard this, they marveled, and they left him, and they went away. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for our time again in your word. Thank you for how your word speaks to really to every area of our lives. And today, as we consider uh, this issue of, of politics and government and our response, I do pray that you would just um, speak to us anew, that you would um, uh, give us fresh understanding of your word, and that you'd give us a desire to want to honor you with, with this segment of our lives. May we honor you with our, with, our, with our political views. May we honor you with our views of government. May we honor you in how we serve uh, even the earthly kingdom. So for this, we need your help. We need you to come and uh, enable our hearing and our learning and even my speaking that Jesus and his words would reign supreme in our hearts. So come and do that now, we pray in his name. Amen. How many of you are familiar with this passage? At least you've heard it, you've read of it. In this very familiar exchange, Jesus confronts a common concern in his days, in his day. The Jews were were at that time under Roman rule. They were an occupied territory. Israel was an occupied territory, and the Jewish people felt this tension at every turn. They, they knew 
they were accountable to God. There was no question about that. They knew this, given their heritage especially. They knew they were accountable to God, but they often questioned their accountability to the governing authorities. And in this instance, the Pharisees, one of the leading Jewish groups of the day, sought to trap Jesus by by forcing him to choose between allegiance to God and allegiance to the state. Is it, po- uh, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? They said. Jesus saw through their attempt, and he holds up a coin. He draws attention to whose face and inscription was on the coin, and he said, Render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and to God what belongs to God. Rather than choose between the two, Jesus is saying, that we have a responsibility to both the state and to God. It's not either or. It's both and. And that same principle still applies today. As we consider what the Bible says about politics, we must understand that we have a God-given responsibility to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Now, what does this mean? What does this entail? What are we expected to render to the state? Now, the passage here is, is the issue at the passage in the passage is this issue of paying taxes, but the principle applies to so many other issues, and so from Scripture we can identify at least four things. Uh, concerning what it means to render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. It means, number one, we are expected to render, uh, expected to give ourselves to the betterment of society. That's number one. We're expected to give ourselves to the betterment of society. Number two, we are to bring a posture of humble submission Number three, we must commit ourselves to prayer. And number four, we must convey our hope in Christ. First, we must invest ourselves to the betterment of society. Now, way back at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, God blessed man and woman and he told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. In order, for, uh, in order to fulfill this cultural mandate uh, implied here is that we must engage in what's going on around us. Wherever you are socially, economically, geographically, and politically, and in whatever you do vocationally, You are called to help humanity flourish under God's gracious care. I want you to think back to the days of Jewish exile. The Jews were besieged by a foreign enemy. Everything they knew and all that was familiar was ripped from them. And they found themselves living in a foreign land And they would have given anything to leave Babylon or avoid it altogether, but God told them just the opposite. 
He says in, uh, through Jeremiah the prophet, in Jeremiah 29, he says to them, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, in its well-being, you will find your well-being. Rather than allow themselves, rather than than allowing them to isolate themselves, God is saying, invest in your community. Live there. Work there. Raise your families there. Interact with people of other families. Multiply. Don't decrease. Pray. Seek what's good for the place where I have you. I have you there. I want you to seek what's good for the people there. Then you and your community will prosper. In what probably sounded so strange to them at the time, God was telling his people to effect change, not from a, not from a distance, but as engaged members of society. Like them, we are similarly called. But unlike the exiles at that time, we in America actually have a voice in how things are done because we can vote. We can help determine which civil servants are elected ranging from your city council, your local city council, to the presidency of the United States. We have a say in which propositions are either passed or denied. This means that we also bear responsibility, some responsibility, for the actions of our government. In a recent article for Bible Study Magazine, uh, Albert Moeller president of Southern Seminary, a leading voice for Christian engagement in the political sphere, he writes, it is an illusion to believe that we, can, that we can be apolitical because at some level, we as a society must decide how we're going to live, what our rules are going to be, what we're going to allow and disallow, and what kind of rights and human dignity we're going to respect, what we're going to stand for, and what our place will be in this world. We bear responsibility. And then he continues with the story. He says, recently I was talking to a young Christian who said, I really don't want anything to do with politics. Fed up with it. Instead, I'm going to commit my life to doing everything I can to end the sex trade. Muller says, well, the only way to affect the kind of moral change that that young person was rightly concerned about involves political action. 
Now, that doesn't mean it's only government, but it means laws and enforcement. It means a certain assertion of human dignity. It means a reaction on the part of the community will be required. And Mueller says, all of that, that's political. Giving to Caesar what belongs to Caesar requires a degree of personal investment. Romans 13.7 says, Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. And as Michael Milton has rightly suggested, the greatest way to honor government is being involved in it. The second thing we must render to Caesar is a spirit of humble submission. Romans 13, 1 and 2 say, Let every person, let every person, who is this speaking to? Let, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed And those who resist will incur judgment. In other words, government is an institution of God. And because God is sovereign and because God is working a much larger plan than what we can presently see or understand, God had purpose for the exiles while they were under a pagan government. He's working a much larger plan than what we can presently see or understand. Ultimately, it's him who moves the governing authorities in and out of power. And because he expects us to trust him, he calls us to submit ourselves to to those authorities. We must never forget the spiritual dimension that runs parallel to the political Politics is far more than the here and now. Now, that doesn't mean that government always gets it right, obviously, or even desires what's right. And of course, when government makes demands of us that clearly run counter to God's will, we must follow the Lord. For example, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were told to worship Nebuchadnezzar's image, or else, they chose or else. Because their worship was reserved for God alone. When Daniel was told to not pray or else, he chose or else. Because he could not not pray. When Peter and John were told to stop talking about Jesus or else, they also chose or else 
saying, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So there are times when we must choose to obey God rather than government, when government makes demands of us that run counter to God's will. But, but, but please understand, this is the exception, not the rule. And I fear that sometimes we in the church get that reversed. As if the rule is to always stand opposed to government, and then occasionally we will submit. God has told us to submit to our governing authorities. Now our own fallibility should foster a spirit of humble submission. In Two Cities, Two Loves, James Montgomery Boyce writes, God's people also participate in the fall. In that they themselves, God's people, have a corrupt, sinful, and deceptive nature. So even when they participate in secular affairs with a view to doing good, they must acknowledge that they do not have all the answers. That secular people also have important insights and skills to offer, perhaps even better than their own. And that Christians sometimes wrongly advance their own selfish concerns to the hurt of other people and therefore need to be reproved and corrected for such errors. Unquote. We must recognize, we must even celebrate the God-given abilities of non-Christians who are at times far more capable than we are in certain areas. And by fostering a spirit of respect and humility we diffuse this us-versus-them mentality. Render to Caesar a posture of humble submission. Third, there must also be a commitment to prayer. Specifically, prayer for our political leaders. When Paul was instructing Timothy about things that should characterize the church, it may surprise us to learn that he included prayer for the government and government officials. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, for example, he wrote, First of all then, I tell you, Timothy, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for those who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and godly life, a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And then he says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior 
who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Notice how we are to pray, according to this passage. We are to pray with supplication. Those are prayers of personal request. We are to pray with intercession. Those are prayers for the benefit of others. And we are to pray with thanksgiving. Those are prayers of gratitude. That's how we are to pray. Notice for whom we are to pray. We're to pray for all people, including those in high positions, for kings and other leaders. And then notice, interestingly, why we are to pray. So that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified, which pleases God, who desires all people to be saved. Now you see what's going on here? Paul is making a very important connection here in that he views the church's prayer for our various government officials as a means of promoting peace and the gospel. I hadn't thought about this before, but this makes sense to me now. Since human government is a divinely ordained institution, it makes sense that God would want us to pray for our leaders as a way of living out the Great Commission. What if we truly began to believe that prayer is more important than our political agenda? God once said, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, if they pray, if they seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sin, and I'll heal their land. This was a promise to the people of Israel, but can it not apply to us also? Does not prayer make a difference in our lives as well as it did in theirs, in our land? as well as in theirs, when we pray for our political leaders, we affirm that God reigns above the nations and we put feet to our faith. Such prayer also weans us, thankfully, from our dependence on political power and political parties while reestablishing our commitment to the gospel by which God is saving and bringing people to the knowledge of, uh, of, of what's true and what, ult- what ultimately matters. In the end, we're praying for changed people, right? Not merely a change in policy. Because Jesus didn't endure the cross for the sake of political reform. He came, he lived, he died, he rose again to redeem and restore us to a kingdom not of this world. Which brings us to the fourth thing we must render to Caesar, which is hope. As Christians in this day and age, our role in this world is to bring the hope of Christ. The challenge, of course, is that not everyone sees their need for Jesus. 
And therefore, people put hope in things that cannot deliver. We live in a pluralistic society where secularization is pushing the church to the margins. Some of you grew up during a time when Christianity was woven into the fabric of, our com- of the community in which you were raised. That's not the case anymore. And we may lament that, but I'm not so sure that cultural Christianity was God's intent either. Rather than throw our hands in disgust or hang our heads in defeat, we must understand there is tremendous opportunity in our day to be the transforming agent the church was always intended to be. But it's going to require a different approach. I want to again quote Muller. He says, we're going to have to be much more persuasive because we aren't able to flex our cultural muscles anymore. We've got to show up with better arguments. We've got to display and demonstrate long-term faithfulness. We've got, to be, uh, we've got to have and hold a very clear commitment to the gospel and to human flourishing. And we've got to show up, he says, as God's hopeful people, whether the political battle before us is won or lost. When we engage the secular... With divine hope, we demonstrate the transformational change that God is making in our lives and can make in the lives of others also. Sometimes called incarnational ministry, this means rather than waiting for others to come to us, we must meet them where they are in a relatable, relevant way. Like Jesus, we must identify the real issues, then participate in resolving them positively. Rather than throwing stones from the sideline, we must come alongside and call people to a better life. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. You are. That that is what you are. You are the light of the world. And a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And so people, neither do people, light a lamp and put it under a basket. They put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house, in the same way, uh, church, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, not just hear your political arguments, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So biblically, rendering to Caesar what belongs to Caesar encompasses more than just paying taxes. It involves investing yourself in a healthy society. It means bringing a posture of humble submission. It means committing to prayer, specifically prayer for our leaders. 
and it involves conveying our hope in Christ. But what about the second part of Jesus' statement? Render to God the things that are God, God's. If we give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, then what belongs to God? Everything. Not everything else, as if God only gets what's left over, but everything in its entirety. In fact, the Bible is saying that we are to serve the state in service to God. Remembering that our primary citizenship lies with Him in His heavenly kingdom, which means we must see the bigger picture and maintain an eternal perspective. I doubt there's a better example of this than Abraham, whose trust in God in this way is memorialized in Hebrews chapter 11. This chapter is sometimes called the Hall of Faith because it pictures various men and women demonstrating great faith in God in incredibly difficult circumstances. And so we read in verses 8 through 10 of that chapter, uh, this little account of Abraham. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him, of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. It says here in verse 8 that Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. When God called, Abraham responded positively to the call, although he didn't fully understand it. He was called to leave that which he knew for the unknown, the familiar for the unfamiliar, the seen for the unseen, that's faith. And as Christians, we must respond in similar fashion, ready and willing to let go of everything we try so hard to keep. And then verse 9 says, By faith Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. The New American Standard translates it this way. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise. The the NIV states that Abraham lived in the land like a stranger in a foreign country. And so, in response to the call of God, Abraham lived like an alien and a stranger. And what makes this more striking is that he lived this way in the land of promise. Stay with me here. Abraham was called by God from his homeland and Abraham obeyed and he moved to a new land, trusting that when he arrived, God would make of him a great nation. God promised to bless him 
to make his name great. He promised to bless others through him, even all the families of the earth. And yet when Abraham arrives in Canaan, in the land of promise, he doesn't settle in. In fact, he does just the opposite. He lives as an outsider, an alien, a stranger, a sojourner just passing through. He lived in tents. Tents are temporary structures. Tents are fine for a season, but they aren't intended for long stays. Tent camping, for for instance, can be a great experience. But after a day or two or even a week, it begins to lose its appeal. And home begins to beckon. I know this because when Sally and I took the kids camping last summer, we were longing for home on the very first night. (laughs) In church, I think it's good for us to remember Abraham because America... is sometimes called the land of promise. Many of the early pilgrims who came to America came believing that they, maybe like Abraham, were called by God and promised great blessing. Many Puritans believed the new world was given by God to serve as a city on a hill for the whole world to see. Many founding fathers believed that this land given by God was to be one nation under God. I love reading about our American heritage And I have no issues with with any of these things. But, have we missed the bigger picture somewhere along the way? Do we have visions of a Christian utopia here on earth? Have we come to believe, even unintentionally, that somehow God's kingdom lies in these United States? As if Jesus bled red, white, and blue? Unlike Abraham, it seems many well-intentioned, giving them the benefit of the doubt, it seems that many well-intentioned but misguided believers fail to see themselves as strangers and aliens just passing through. But instead, strive for a state of political nirvana where their joy and contentment is purely based on which leaders are in office. There's something wrong with this picture. America is not the promised land, it was never intended to be. Even Canaan itself was only a shadow 
of that which was coming. Why, Abraham? Why not settle down in Canaan? Why not stake your claim to that land? Because according to Hebrews 11.10, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose foundations mean it's going to last. That's the picture there. Whose designer and builder is God. Canaan was a land of promise indeed, but Abraham looked to another land, a higher kingdom. And that's what we see throughout Hebrews chapter 11. We see people who trusted God with their earthly circumstance while looking forward to a heavenly kingdom. They desired, verse 16 of that chapter, they desired a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For He's preparing for them a city. From Abraham and many others then, we learn that giving to God what belongs to God involves responding to Him by faith and living where He places us as sojourners, living as sojourners in a foreign land while fixing the gaze of the soul on the eternal kingdom of heaven. When it comes to politics then, it's not primarily about which side of the aisle you're on. It's not primarily about political strategies. It's not primarily about being on the winning team and having, quote-unquote, your president in office. Instead, the Bible would have us invest ourselves in society, regardless of who's in office. The Bible would have us submit to those in authority. The Bible would have us pray for our leaders, including, did you notice, prayers of thanksgiving. The Bible would have us bring the hope of the gospel to bear. For as the prophet Isaiah once put it, and I'll close with this, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Human government will not last, but the reign of Christ will last forever. So as citizens of these two kingdoms, the earthly 
and the heavenly. Serve the one while always prioritizing the other. Amen. God, we're grateful for our time today. I pray that you would impress your truth upon us even still, that you would indeed make us people who willingly, gladly, dare I say even cheerfully, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Make us uh, engaged, contributing members of society. Help us to bring a posture of humble submission, not always demanding our way. Make us to be people of prayer, including prayer for our leaders. And help us to be those who convey hope the hope in Christ. Give us a view of the bigger picture that we may keep an eternal perspective in mind. We ask this for the glory of your name and for the good of your church. Amen.